Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com, check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Guys, after a little bit of a hiatus here, we are back with an absolutely killer episode with the one and only Boo Schexnader. And guys, we're going to talk about something a little different for Coach, and, uh, and that's going to be ACL rehab. We're going to get into the basic principles of speed training and how they fit in uh, to the rehab setting, the rules of neuromuscular facilitation and how that fits in what he's doing with the people he's helping come back uh, from these injuries. We're going to get into eccentric training and what he does with that. Um, and then we're going to start talking about examples of the running progression he uses with these kids, you know, what he's doing, how he's building it. And then, you know, understanding that they have to do it well if they can't, that they don't do it, and what that leads to in the recovery and the rehabilitation of these young athletes. Guys, as always, you know, Boo knocks it out of the park. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes, Podomatic, or YouTube, Hit that button and do so, guys. This is a talk I really, really loved. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Coach, thanks for being on with us today. Happy to be here. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, so, you know, Coach, when people hear the name Boo, they typically think we're going to be talking about, you know, athletics, track and field, sprint training, but we're going to talk about something else you've been real interested in of late, and that's rehabbing the ACL. So how about we start with, what you're getting into right now with it and, and how you got moving this direction? Well, I got kind of pressed into it. I've, ha I've had a bit of a relationship with the hospital, and because of that, uh, some ACL cases have come my way. Just to make things perfectly clear before we start, I don't begin like the day after uh, surgery. You know, I'm typically um, someone who takes them about maybe 10 weeks afterwards. And anyway, to make a long story short, what I've uh, what I try to do is I just try to try to apply the basic principles of speed training in a way that um, fits the rehab setting and seem to be enjoying pretty good results with it. Interesting. So we're we're talking some time post surgery, and then how do we how do we get this rolling with these kids? Well, I I think that I I just apply the basic rules of neuromuscular integration. You know. What I, I, you know, what we know about training a healthy athlete is that uh, an important prerequisite to developing strength is to improve the nervous system's ability to activate muscle tissue, most specifically the rate coding capabilities. And this is prerequisite to high levels of strength development. So um, a lot of rehab models are based upon the fact that, okay, we're going to get this strong. And after we get them strong, we're going to power train them. Well, the problem with that is that the power training is 
typically what produces these rate coding improvements, and in return, those serve as a prerequisite for strength development. So what I try to do is, in the rehab setting, I try to employ power training as much as I can. I try to employ speed of movement as much as I can. Now, in some cases, this is real easy because when you're applying speed of movement or power training away from the injury site, you know, there's nothing there that's difficult or controversial or risky. Uh, but it does take a little bit of an art and a little bit of a skill to apply speed power training uh, correctly at the appropriate levels at the injury site. And I think that's where, um, you know, you've got to be a little careful and kind of have a little bit of savvy to your game, so to speak. I love it. So now let's take a step back and let's talk about where that savvy is. So what are some things that you see um, as being, you know, the, the tricks or the, the, the tweaks that you're making with these people in recovery? Well, good. Well, first of all, like I said, I, I'm looking at neuromuscular integration, establishing rate coding as a prerequisite to strength development. So what I'm looking for is any way that I can apply speed of movement. Um, I, I just look at it this way. If you don't, it's kind of like telling a kid, look, as soon as you get strong, we'll let you lift weights. That's not the way it works. You get strong by lifting weights. Well, it's kind of the same thing, and I feel that sometimes rehabs are kind of based on that, that backwards idea. So what I try to do here is I try to employ higher speeds of movements and power output levels that are significantly high from, this, from, from day one the first, as soon as I get them. What I normally do is I uh, like to train eccentrically. You know, eventually... Um, you have to perform eccentrically, and eccentric demands are the toughest demands. So I like to train and, and rehab in an eccentric environment. You know, uh, A reason why a lot of rehabs fail is because there isn't enough of an eccentric component in those rehabs. You know, you know if you're you know, maxing out on a bench or maxing out on a squat or whatever, and you are measuring the tension level at the muscle, in the muscle tissue at, say, your peak uh, bench press or your peak squat, that tension level doesn't come close to the tension level you experience in eccentric performance. So since all performance is eccentric, I choose to eccentrically train from the beginning. So once an athlete has progressed to the point in their rehab, normally it's around 10 weeks or so, where we can uh, actually do something athletic, so to speak, uh, I kind of have a progression that I like to put them through. Uh, first of all, I know that in most rehab programs, the... Um, the um, Jogging is like the first thing you do, right? Because that's the mm -hmm. simplest thing. But I don't necessarily agree. Uh, jogging, you know, each step has a rotational component, and different people have wildly different rates of pronation, so that means the stresses that are applied are very unpredictable. So what I like to do with them is I like to use single leg, I mean double leg jumping to begin with. What I do is I take these athletes and uh, if they're not ready to jump yet, I kind of have them vibrate in place, kind of bouncing up and down until eventually they can leave the ground, and then they're actually doing like double-leg pogo jumps. And then after they're comfortable in a double-leg jumping setting, then I have them transfer weight, more and more weight onto the uh, injured leg until eventually they can perform single-leg pogo jumps. So the pogo jump is kind of like a fundamental exercise. It's not that it's because it's my favorite. It's because it makes the most sense biomechanically. You know, in a jump like that, um, in a vertical sense, you never really have to worry about postural alignment. Uh, also, uh, because there isn't any cycling action of the foot or anything like that, the quadricep muscle is always in perfect position to protect the knee joint. 
So it really establishes the whole integration of the quad and how the quad acts in eccentric operation as well. So in short, those jumps are kind of my remedial thing. So I, I start them off, I take them until they can do those jumps significantly well. And once I feel that they can jump well in a double leg format and then progress to the single leg format and show some proficiency there, then it's time to have them run. And uh, that's when I typically start to get them into the uh, into a sprint program. I love that. I love that because, one, it, it is very different, and, and, two, it really makes a lot of sense to me. So now when you were – can we take a step back? When we were talking eccentric training, are we talking slow controlled movement? Are we talking – like flywheely type things. Like, what are you doing with these eccentric loads? With these jumping. Oh, so yeah. the jumping is the eccentric. Yeah. The jumping is what I consider eccentric training. Yeah, you know, you get good levels of tension in eccentric in, in jumps, any type of multi jump training or plyometric training. So that's what I choose to use as my fundamental tool in in most instances. So again, like I said, because the foot contact patterns are more predictable in double leg jumping than they are, say, in jogging. I like to use that as my initial lead-in for that reason. And then I get them ready to sprint. Now, once I get them ready to sprint, um, what I do is I sprint them really fast but very short distances. Um, jogging, I don't think, does much, uh, doesn't do anything for power output. And, in fact, there's a lot of negatives associated with it. You know, I have a lot of athletes that I don't want to jog, so I'm not going to use jogging as a, as a tool there. So what I do is I'll sprint them short distances, and there, there's a lot of work to it. You know, what typically happens is, you know, I'll challenge an athlete to sprint 10 yards or 10 meters, and what will typically happen is they'll come back and they'll say, I felt something. You know, and then that's where the conversations take place. You know, did it hurt? Did you feel something? Because there's a difference there. No, coach, I felt something. Okay, well, this time do it at 90% and see what, what it feels like. Coach, that time I didn't feel it. Okay, well, next time let's try going full blast so you're always going to encounter these mild obstacles and you have to identify what's pain and what's an odd feeling or what's discomfort and identify what's a risk and what's not and be able to coax an athlete through those types of things you know what i typically do is i sprint out these very short distances like i said if we achieve sprints of say seven to eight yards or seven to eight meters on the first day i'm fine with that and what I typically do is with the sprint program, I work back and forth uh, twice a week between sprinting and resisted sprinting. I use the sleds. The sleds are a wonderful rehab tool because you can get maximal uh, power output without maximal velocities, maximal angular jo- uh, velocities at the joints. So what I, this is how the progression typically goes. Normally on the first day of sprinting, we can safely sprint out to a distance of, say, maybe 10 meters or so, somewhere around that range. Well, if that's the case, almost always with the resistant runs the same week in the next session, then we can typically get out in the neighborhood of anywhere from 15 meters up to 16 or 17 meters. Then typically we can surpass that distance. So we always are able to surpass the sprint distance in the resisted format and then achieve that same distance back in the sprint format. And typically it's about maybe six to eight sessions of sprinting between the flat sprints and the resisted sprints, uh, and then they're able to, like, blast 40s, you know, full blast. 
the two things that I watch for really carefully when they're doing this sprinting, first of all, is the deceleration. That's where most of your risk occurs. Uh, and if I notice any tentativeness in deceleration, um, I, I, I have to be prepared to handle that. First of all, I typically have about a two-to-one rule, which means if you sprint for 10, you have to use 20 to stop. So the deceleration is very gradual. And if I still feel that it's ginger, it's, it, it, they're being tentative there, then what I typically do is I back off of the sprinting and I start doing forward and back jumps because the forward and back jumps tend to uh, produce a little bit more preparation for the deceleration phase. And then that, so that's something I look for. The other thing I look at really hard are the recovery heights. Uh, you know, anytime you do an ACL rehab, there's going to be a certain amount of swelling, certain amount of fluid there in the knee, and it's going to restrict mobility in the knee. And that doesn't really cause problems at ground impact. What it really does is it causes problems uh, during the re- recovery stroke. You know, when angular momentum forces the heel up toward the butt on the recovery, uh, if there isn't mobility in the knee, then the recovery height is going to be lower than it should be or would be otherwise. So what I'm continually doing is looking at the recovery heights, uh, comparing the recovery height of the good leg to the recovery height of the bad leg. And if I ever see an extreme discrepancy in recovery heights, well, then I know that's a red flag, and then I know that I have to back off or that's as far as I can get on that particular day. An interesting thing, though, is that, you know, as I do these, and I've done quite a few of them now, um, I don't really write stuff down because there never seems to be a day where I don't surpass what I thought I was able to, to accomplish, meaning that we never seem to fall short. We always seem to surpass. And um, and this was an interesting thing for me because this whole educational process of going through this stuff with these athletes and watching how they react and so forth has really underlined a lot of the things that I've always believed about speed and power training with healthy people. So so in short, that's kind of how I handle the, the, the sprint program. Am I getting too far ahead of us here? No. I think that this is an awesome lead-in. But before we backtrack, I think we should go right into what you said there and why do you think that is? Like, why do you think they're able to surpass what your experience would tell you they should be at for day one versus day 12 versus day 20? Well, my experience is starting to change, you know, meaning yeah. that my expectations are starting to change, of course. But, you know, I think that it's cultural. You know, we've just been taught to believe that rehabs take forever. You know, we've been taught to believe that things should take long periods of time, and I don't know that that's necessarily true, you know. Um, you know, we genuinely believe that when Adrian Peterson, for example, came back and everybody was oohing and on and is this safe, I'm really kind of believing that really that probably should be the norm rather than the exception um, because of the, the things I'm noticing, just everything seems to be pretty much ready, you know. So anyhow, um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. There's some other things that I think are important, like when I do ACL rehabs, I stay away from anything slow and heavy, uh, like squatting. And the reason why is not because I'm afraid of the knee, but because the slow, heavy stuff dulls proprioception. And the proprioception is very important to reestablish that neuromuscular integration that we were thinking earlier. So the, the slow forms of squatting and similar exercises delay the, the, the increase in rate coding capabilities, that is the prerequisite for strength development. 
So what I'll do with these athletes when I feel safe about it, I'll have them do squat jumps and lunge jumps with light weights and things of that nature. But I stay away from the heaviest low squat, heaviest low squatting as long as I possibly can. And again, it's not about I'm afraid about the knee. It's that I don't want the dull proprioceptive senses because that's going to be slow us down later. I know that in rehab, a, a huge measure of rehab is, you know, the quadriceps, the circumference, you know, the quadriceps and so forth. And there are certain markers you have to hit. But I'm a firm believer that that's something that you don't worry about initially. I'm a firm believer that, that if that's your number one goal, then that's going to kind of steer you into things that are going to produce delays in reestablishing rate coding, and then the rehab is going to be prolonged in that respect. So the slower forms of strength and the actual circumference, diameter, whatever you want to call it, of the of the quad are the things I kind of worry about at the end of the rehab. I don't worry about them so much at the beginning of the rehab uh, for that reason. So, so just kind of keep in mind, everything in my mind is kind of based on its effect on the nervous system and how we can reestablish communication between the nervous system and the tissues around that knee. I try to do as much global training as I can, you know, like power cleans and things of that nature, uh, because, you know, neural training is global in nature, you know, so you do, you know, if you, if you, any kind of explosive training that you do, whether it's upper body or whatever, it's going to have some type of effect globally, which is going to impact uh, recruitment as well. So those are good things to do as, as, as well. Again, fantastic. Awesome. I love this because, you know, it's, I love when I hear things like we want to stay away from heavy squats at this instance, because being a strength coach, there's so many of us that like right now, when you heard that somebody just dropped their coffee, you know, it's like, I can't believe he said that. Well, your listeners should know that I'm a squat guy. You know, oh, my yes. athletes squat. Yeah, but I'm just saying this is not the, the time. You know, what typically happens is when the rehab is complete, you know, and I have 100% confidence in the in the tissues, strength levels, power levels, and everything, then I'll just strap a heavy sled onto them and have them do backwards walks with that sled. And like two sessions of that, and boom, the quad size is right back. So it's not like it's hard to accomplish. You can get it, you know, done real 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 fast you know so it's not that that big a deal so to speak you know so and it's not like short, they don't get stronger because they're sprinting either well that's the thing that a lot of strength coaches i think miss period you know you take any kid who lifts regularly and then you sprint them um and they haven't been sprinting they're going to be sore and the reason why is because the tension levels in, involved in sprinting are higher than those in the weight room so we always think about the strength program making kids faster, but it also works the other way around as well. You know, so that it just kind of ties into what I was saying. Plus the speed training is like the epitome of neural integration establishment, you know. So in short, that's kind of how I look at the whole weight training thing. You know, do whatever they can safely and employ ballistic lifting. And the very last thing that I do is move them back into squatting and things of that nature. So typically... You know, this doesn't take a long period of time, and typically everything around the knee and everything, you know, power levels are up pretty good and such, uh, and you feel good about it. And it's in this time where I kind of change gears a little bit. Um, The reason why a lot of kids get hurt, come back and get hurt again, is because of 
an inhibitory effect. You know, the central nervous system kind of throttles down power outputs after an injury as a self-protection type of mechanism, you know. So even though the knee's perfect, even though it's in shape, everything looks good, um, the power levels are typically not there because of that inhibition. So what I typically do is then I take them through several training um, sessions of very high-intensity training, you know, depth jumping, uh, sprint field, sprint type of work in short zones, things of that nature. And the whole idea here is to really challenge intensity and break through that inhibitory uh, effect so that when they do return, they are safe. Now, specific sport conditioning is not of a concern to me early. Um, I feel that if you're really concerned about sport conditioning, it delays the process of establishing the neuromuscular integration. So, therefore, uh, I don't worry about it very much. So, once my kid is back, uh, then I have to be very careful about budgeting time, with budgeting minutes or whatever the case in play, uh, because they're not going to be game fit, so to speak. So, that's when they get back to practice and they have to reestablish that. But I feel that if you worry about game fitness from the very first day of the rehab, that it actually prolongs the rehab because the things that need to take place chemically are, are it's not going to happen as fast if you're concerned about the fitness side of things. Again, I love it. Um, I, I love all of that. Now, let's talk about something that is bound to happen when we're talking about rehab, and that is the bad days. So how do you take this, assuming that there are days where you have people that come in and things aren't working? Because if we're if we're sprinting and we're running with sleds, how are you modifying that on a day-to-day basis with these uh, recovering athletes? Well, I don't modify it. They have to be able to do it well, and if they can't do it well, we don't do it. You know, so I'm looking for their ability to execute power. One of the things that I haven't mentioned here is that um, when I direct speed power training um, toward these ACL patients, I never train them more than twice a week. Um, Now, they'll do other things on other days. You know, they'll do some circuit training, ab work, you know, the other kind of things. But as far as pure speed power training directed either at the body or at the injury site, I only do it twice a week. Um, the reason why is because that gives me a chance to reach and that gives me a chance to take small risks, take calculated risks. Um, it never fails. You know, we'll be rehabbing somebody and it's going really well. And the first comment I always get is, hey, coach, it's going great. Why, why don't we go three times a week instead of two? And that's totally wrong because the whole reason why it's going so well is because of the fact that we're spacing things out. You know, I think that almost all of the answers to the rehab setbacks are found uh, not because we challenge the athletes too much, but because we challenge them too often. Uh, it's be- I think the answers lie in improper management of densities, not the volumes or the intensity of the training. So I really haven't had many. I know it will always happen, and I don't claim to be perfect by any means. But this is a very, what you're saying is a very rare occurrence. And I, I, I attribute that to the fact that we don't like try to hammer day after day after day, that we pick our spots, train intensely, uh, and then we're a little bit more cautious on the rest side between workouts. 
If you're training someone to perform a skill and they can't do it as perfectly as they should be able to do it, that you don't let them practice doing things poorly. That's pretty much what I'm saying. Now, different skills have different levels of perfection and different power outputs that have to be mastered. But genuine high-end power output training, you know, that's the way I manage it. That's why on that very first day, that kid can probably run 20, probably run 30, but they can't sprint it well. Maybe the only distance they can sprint on that day is six, eight, nine meters. If that's the case, we'll sprint six, eight, nine meters. That's the point I'm trying to get at is I'm looking at putting them in environments that are safe and safely allow them to execute maximal power outputs or display maximal power outputs, however brief it may be or even in a modified setting. And then the next absolutely fantastic point that you touched upon in that last little bit was you're spacing these workouts out so they can perform to their highest level possible, adapt, recover, and come back and be better. So more is not better. That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, um, you know, as, as, as strength coaches, we're always taught, you know, how rest is important. And we always, it's drilled into our heads that rest is important because it avoids injury. But rest is also what enables you to reach and take risks as well. You know, um, the, 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 the more spacing you have between uh, sessions, the more opportunity you have to reach in those sessions. So I attribute the ability to, you know, to, to achieve certain intensities just because of the fact that I don't achieve them that often. I think that sometimes as coaches, and this is not just the case in rehab, this is just the coach, the, 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 in, in general, sometimes we as coaches fall into, you know, coaches are grinders. So, you know, we grind, meaning that we kind of understand, you know, the work ethic and we want to do things frequently and a lot and so often, whereas a lot of times we could get much better results by doing it more intensely, but doing it less uh, frequently. You know, ultimately, you know, the overload variable you're trying to achieve is not volume, it's intensity. So anything that you do to achieve intensity is going to demand an increase in, in work-to-rest ratio. So that being said, uh, I think that that's how you have to look at it, and I think that's the difference between training an athlete who's at an emerging level and an athlete who's at an elite level. Oh, Yes. So then, now let me ask you this, and we can we can start to close here. Mm-hmm. Since most of the people that are going to listen to this are strength coaches, and probably most of them have put their hands up as many times as I have during this talk in like a hallelujah, thank you so much for saying this type moment. When we get these kids back, when they're already a third halfway through these programs, and they're starting into their return to play type aspect. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend to the strength coach when it comes to these type of things, helping these student athletes or their clients uh, get back on the, the pitch, ice, court, field, whatever it may be? Well, my number one thing is I think that you got to take a, a back seat and swallow your ego a little bit. You know, when you... When you when these kids come back to play, um, then suddenly the whole environment becomes unpredictable. That's the whole difference between training a kid and having a kid compete. Is that in competition things that are unpredictable are going to happen? You know, 
So that's when I think that you, as a strength coach, the most important thing you do is not be married to your program, meaning that if you see overload or overuse or anything in the in, in the in the sport, then you have to be prepared not to pile on, but you have to be prepared to contrast that. Meaning, you got to be the better person and understand the value of restoration in those situations, and not be. I hate to use the term hard-headed, but your program takes a back seat at that point. I, I firmly believe that periodization is a great idea and a great thing to do, but I don't think anybody's smart enough to periodize an in-season program because you never know what you're going to get. You know, every kid is a little different. Um, whether they're coming back from injury or whatever state they're in is going to be very different, you know. Um, and you know, for yourself, you know, if you're working with the football team, you know, on Monday the place kicker's ready to go. You know, the kid that played 65, 70 snaps on the defensive line and got double teamed all day is not. So you have to be able to adapt and so forth and understand the intensity of training is important, but the intensity doesn't just come from your training. It's an aggregate intensity that represents the intensity of your training and competitions, the games, the travel, and all of the other stressors in that athlete's life. So in short, that's what I would say is just to be careful and keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on with those athletes and be prepared to supply restoration when they need it. And also, when you start to feel sluggishness, be prepared be prepared to supply intensity when they need it. That's one of the challenges, I think, of training speed power athletes is that quite often overtraining and undertraining look alike as far as the symptoms are concerned. And it takes a little bit of art to differentiate between the two. No. And that is an absolutely fantastic place for us to call it. Coach, thank you so much. This is absolutely fantastic. 30 minutes of just absolute gems. Well, thank you. I didn't I'm just try to tell folks what I do and what I think. So anyway, I, I appreciate um, the opportunity to, uh, to be on your show. Yeah, well, Coach, thank you so much. We, uh, we'll get this up here real soon. People are going to love it. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. That's my pleasure, Jacob. Thank you. You got it. And a huge thanks to Coach Sexnator for taking the time out and talking with us today. Guys, another point of view, another way of looking at how we can help our kids recover from such an awful but common injury that we see today in athletics. Some great ideas, some great methods that he's talking about, and he breaks it down there for you. Can't thank him enough for being so open and honest in his sharing and, and just allowing us here to, to take in all that information. Guys, do us all a favor, too. Make sure you check out his page, S-A-C Speed. So, S-A-C Speed, one word, dot com, uh, to stay up to date with everything the coach is doing. And as always, if you guys enjoyed the talk, please share it through the social media out of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be, guys. Again, just trying to get great information out to all the coaches out there. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes, Podomatic, and YouTube yet, hit that subscribe button and hit that like button, guys. We really appreciate it. Everything that you're doing for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.